Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello. And welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I am Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Fumblow. Howdy. Hey. Hello. 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 <laughs> Hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, okay, good. Hi. Okay, good. Hi, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm great. <laughs> My grandma's um voicemail is a uh, voicemail message is uh-huh. just like that. H- like she, she goes, Hi, this is Carolyn. And then it's a really long pause. Uh-huh. She goes, Sorry, I couldn't get to the phone. And then there's another <laughs> really long pause. <laughs> We're like, Mama, what? this is not a good voicemail message. <laughs> well, my I think my least favorite is the people that are like, Hello. Hey, hu- sorry, I can't hear. Uh, no, nah, I'm just kidding. It's it's yeah. Jared. Leave a message. I'm like, don't. Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> like, why would you do such a thing to me? Yeah, it feels very like '90s, early 2000s, like weird yes. voicemail. Did you ever have? Uh, mine is like the standard. Like, you've reached nine seven. Oh, uh, I'm not going to say my actual phone number. I, please don't. No, no, but you know, it, it like says. Um, is that have you ever had like a fun one? It says one? the number. Yeah. Well, right now I still have my voice somehow, I think, from when I was 13. I don't know what it sounds like. You could call my phone number and I'll let it go to voicemail and we can find out. But I don't Should we do know that what right it now? sounds like. You can if you want to. Right. But I used to have fun, want fun ringtones, but I never really had a fun voicemail, like a trick message. So you would, you were more of like a ringtone callback kind of girl? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like a text message signatures. Oh, I love that for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, you ready? Yeah. Let's do it. I'm nervous. Hey, it's me. I can't get to the phone to leave a message. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> At the tone, I'm so out of breath. You were really breathy. What? <laughs> I was. I was. I was like, I was probably like rushing around because like, I have to record my voice from message. I need Mom, to have leave one. me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Just for all of the calls you're getting, inevitably. Yeah, so many. Even though I wasn't allowed to like give out my phone number to anyone that my mom didn't pre-approve of on my LG chocolate. Oh, so, wow. Oh, yeah, wow. An yeah. LG chocolate. That was my first, that was my first phone. I had a charm. Phones used to have that little. Yeah, nub. Like whole thing yeah. that you could put charm. I don't yes. know if it was four charms. I'm assuming they weren't manufactured for charms. I'm going to say no. We all bought charms, charms to like yeah. wrap through it yeah, yeah, and yeah. put it in. So my my blue LG chocolate had a little charm on it. That is email signature. Funny. I, or text message signature. I also had an LG chocolate. It was mm-hmm. white and it was the phone of a guy who worked for my dad um, <laughs> that like didn't need it anymore. And all of, so when I got it, it had all of his messages, all of his photos, and it was all in oh. Spanish, so I couldn't read anything. Uh-huh. And I had no idea like what whose phone. It, I wiped it clean, but it was like the guy who worked for him, and it was his like work phone. And then he like no longer That's needed so this, so I got the leftover phone. I then ended up flushing it down a toilet in a pancake house down the Jersey Shore <laughs> by accident. And it was on the day that we were leaving the shore. We were like down there for a week. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go to the bathroom before like the two hour drive home. 
and it was in the pocket of my sweatshirt that I was wearing. And so I peed and then I like leaned a little bit forward to flush. And as I leaned forward, I flushed the thing and the phone slid right out of the front pocket of my sweatshirt after I flushed. So as the the toilet is circling, swirling down, my phone falls into the toilet. And because it's an LG chocolate, it's small, it's thin. It's pretty small. It went right into the tube of the toilet and just got sucked down. So I run back into the restaurant and I'm like, I just flushed my phone down the toilet. My mom's like, what? And I'm like, I flushed my phone down the toilet. Right. And the entire restaurant heard and laughed. Yeah, they were perfectly turd shaped. So they yes. could have very easily fit right down. Oh, like it now was my, your right. iPhone is not going no. into the toilet. I mean, it will go into the water, but it's not going down that drain. No. No, my no. LG chocolate. But an LG chocolate <laughs> swiped. Swiped by the pancake house <laughs> toilet <laughs> down the Jersey Shore. Oh no. Yeah, and I think the worst part about it was it was, like, middle school when everyone was really getting Mm. into texting and, like, you were cool if you texted people. And then I didn't have a phone for a while because I flushed it down the toilet. So I felt the disconnect from the the social – Yeah, the FOMO of the social world of middle school uh, really hit me hard, I think, in that month or two that I didn't have a phone. But I feel like you have to have the experience of losing your phone and then being, like – sort of punished by not having one for a while yeah. when it's like don't fucking flush your phone down the toilet then dummy right and and to this day my mom maintains that i did it on purpose why would i do it on purpose it was like my lifeline to the middle school right. social network it was right. it's how i you were isolated <laughs> right absolutely i was living and breathing through that lg chocolate yeah and, right and without it i right. mean basically like removing your oxygen could you imagine if this was an ad for a new lg chocolate that was coming out i wish there are i say all the time like my iphone is a disease and i need to get rid of it i can't i like physically Mm -mm. cannot i'm addicted to it Mm -hmm. my other grandmother not the one with the funny voice message yeah my other grandmother still has a not she calls it her dumb phone because it's it's not a smartphone it's not because it is not a smartphone it is like a flip phone it's still i think it's a she used to have a motorola razor until like 2016 wow and then now yeah now i'm not sure what kind of phone it is but essentially the verizon store was like girl we don't make these anymore and like I don't even think you're allowed to have them anymore because they're not like 5G capable and like all of our phones have to be 5G so like you have to get a smartphone why do they have to be 5G capable because essentially or like at least 4G because 3G doesn't really exist anymore I don't know for service you mean like you need like 5G to get her phone will not work love it she's like I don't need this thing I don't want to talk to anybody She refuses. And so we don't know if she's just going to get rid of her phone. But essentially, they were like, in the next two years, you like cannot have this phone anymore. She was like, really? Watch me. I'm gonna. I will have this phone. Well, you know what? I was going to make a joke that we should bring landlines back. But then I thought, no, I don't. I don't agree with that either. (laughs) But they removed the last payphone from New York City streets like a few months ago. Like there are officially no more payphones in new york anymore like there's no public dangerous right yeah that sucks so now you really need now you really need a cell phone 
Yeah, you need to be connected. It Uh is so wild. I hate to sound like a boomer, but it is what it is. How, like, much things have changed in our short lifetimes. And this was what I was going to mention to you before, like, all of the technological advancements that we have, but Mm -hmm. I don't know how to use them. Mm -hmm. So just before we started recording this, Jared needed to leave our studio room that we record in like virtually he needed to close his tab and restart it to make sure our connection was crisp Mm -hmm. for you all Mm -hmm. and that's happened to me before but because I'm an idiot and I don't know how to use my computer or my cell phone I was in like a telehealth appointment and the wi-fi wasn't working and the doctor was like why don't you leave the room and come back and see if it works tell me you, so you know physically what I fucking got did? up and left. I got up from my chair and you can see this door behind me Jared I got up from my chair I walked out the door I closed the door behind me waited an arbitrary amount of seconds because I was like that's a weird request I don't think it's gonna make it work The whole time I'm still on camera with the doctor because I thought she was like, just go leave the room and come back and it'll make it work. And as you're walking away, she wasn't like, wait, 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 wait. That's not. Because I think she was like, that's so embarrassing. No one's ever done that before. I don't know what to do. (laughs) So I walked out of the room, just like, like spun around and came back inside and sat down and I was like, it's still not working. (laughs) You. I'm not kidding. That's a true story. It's a true story. It's because. I am still in the LG chocolate Mm -hmm. mentality. My brain has not evolved past the Motorola Mm -hmm. Razor phase Mm -hmm. era. So I don't know how to use technology at all. Rachel Craig, you never cease to amaze me. I know. It's amazing how someone can be smart and also the most idiotic, dumb person you've ever met in your Mm -hmm. life. And yet here you You are sitting in front of me. Here I am. I'm just a walking contradiction. (laughs) And I love that for you. Thank you. And I support you. I thank you. It, it's You're not welcome. going anywhere. So it's it's here for you always. Wow. And thank I am for your so appreciative of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of things not going anywhere. Ooh, not going anywhere. Not going anywhere. We want to make a little announcement to all of our faithful listeners and to all of our new mm-hmm. listeners. This episode, episode 27 of Historically Really Good Friends, is the end of season one. This is going to be our last episode of season one. We will be back in a few short weeks in September with the start of season two. Some really fun stories, some great content. We got a lot of good things coming your way. We're going to play around with some things. We're we're just... Mm -hmm. Making a podcast is is a lot, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna take the time and kind of regroup and refocus and make sure that we come back stronger and better with some really mm-hmm. really great content. But we are not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Jared and I will be hard at work in these next few weeks, mm-hmm. coming up with some great new stuff for you all and we hope to see you again in september oh, because yeah. you are such faithful listeners yeah you do not go anywhere you're not allowed to go anywhere either we're not going no, anywhere so no. you can't go anywhere <laughs> that's how it works yes exactly exactly but we'll be back we'll 
be around on social media. So be sure to follow us if you haven't. We'll be posting updates. We'll be we'll be around. Mm-hmm. We're not going anywhere, but we just want to get our little ducks in a row and come back with some kicking content in September. Our Instagram is at historically really. You can find us there. In the meantime, while we're away getting everything ready for you, make sure to listen to all of the episodes that you haven't listened to yet. Make sure to catch up on the catalog that we have for you. We have now 27 really great episodes for you. Over six months worth of content. And over 50 subjects. So I'm sure you will find something that interests you or something new. Listen with your friends. Go on a little pre-fall road trip mm-hmm. with uh, with historically really good friends take, take jared along. and i with you yeah Ooh, yeah take <laughs> us yeah take us with you we'll be back shortly but before we go anywhere we do have two really awesome stories for you so let's get into them shall we we shall i'm going first this week and to kind of kick off our Closing to season one, episode 27, I'm going to be talking to you about the Blood Sisters in lesbian activism during the AIDS crisis. Mm, I'm very interested in this title alone. Again, similar to Tom of Finland, when I saw Blood Sisters, I was like, I don't know if I want to get into that. I don't know what that means. It's... So tell me. I assume it's it's going to be not what people think it is. But yeah. these sources may give you a little bit of a clue. A lot of a clue. The sources that I use this week are episode 154 of the podcast, Whining About Herstory on the Blood Sisters. Mm -hmm. And this is a new podcast that I found wine as in like grapes, juice, wine, alcohol. (laughs) I also used the Blood Sisters of San Diego by the Women's Museum of California. The Lesbian Blood Sisters Who Cared for Gay Men When Doctors Were Too Scared To by Dr. Kate Lister. The Lesbian Heroes of the 80s AIDS Crisis from lesbianews.com. An article by Christina Lindgren for the Los Angeles Times from 1985. We Are Everywhere, Lesbians in the Archive from the Yale University Library Online Exhibitions and HIV.gov, specifically their timeline on HIV and AIDS. So, in June of 1981, the first cases of AIDS Acquired immunodeficiency syndrome were reported in the United States, more specifically from Los Angeles, in five young, previously healthy gay men. However, at this time, these five cases aren't known to be AIDS. Incredibly similar to what we just went through and are continuing to go through with COVID-19, there's no information on this new illness, and so the Center for Disease Control the CDC, reports on five cases of rare lung infection. On that very same day, a dermatologist calls the CDC to report a cluster of cases of a rare and unusually aggressive cancer, Kaposi sarcoma, among gay men in New York and California. Within days, there are calls to the CDC reporting from around the nation of similar cases of the lung infection, Kaposi sarcoma, and other opportunistic infections among gay men. A month later, in early July, a newspaper in San Francisco for gay men and women publishes a report with the first mention of gay men's pneumonia. The very next day, the CDC releases a report about Kaposi sarcoma and about the lung infection in specifically homosexual men, and the New York Times publishes the article entitled 
rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals. And from them, the term gay cancer enters the public discourse. In the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, it was actually called GRID or gay-related mm. immunodeficiency. Okay. So it was I never knew that. It was specifically labeled officially as gay-related. So it was mm. from the beginning stigmatized and kind of labeled as a gays only sort of thing. Right. right. And isolated to those communities. Right. And so that's what we're seeing with MPXV with the labeling kind of of like a gay only disease. And I saw a TikTok recently where there's this photo of a man in Italy, I think it was Italy, and his entire legs are covered, covered in the little pox. The lesions. The, yeah. yeah. And a doctor on the train went up to him and said, you need to quarantine, like you need to not, not be here. And the guy said, no, my doctor said I only have to wear a mask. I'm not gay, so I, I can't get it. I can't spread it. And the doctor said, no, 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 that's not. That's not how that works. And so he looked to a woman that was sitting directly on the seat where the guy was standing, holding the rail. And he looked to the woman and said, aren't you concerned about contracting this? And she said, no, I'm not gay. So I can't get it. Right. And so we're seeing the same exact thing now that we saw back in the 80s at the outbreak at the start of this epidemic. Right. Right, right. I just think it's important because, again, we don't know how things spread and germs work and I'm not an epidemiologist and whatever. But I think it's just important to be mindful of what happens both to queer people when you label things like this and, Jared, like you were saying, to other people who can also contract the illness to everyone else and spread it and like the harm that it causes mm -hmm. first to stigmatize one group and then to also be like everybody else is fine right because like don't worry about resources it. resources get diverted away from it because it's a marginalized community and then no one else is as cautious it's just a whole mm -hmm. clusterfuck and knock it off it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense to be like exclusively one community is affected by this it right does like not how make sense. would that happen how would only one certain type of person get right. this very right. easily spreadable thing and i'm not a doctor but i can right. tell you that that makes no sense even in my idiot brain exactly i agree with you when i feel the same way <laughs> so from here the spread of HIV and AIDS wipes through the country, affecting gay men, people of color, women, and babies, although the country is focused solely on only the gay men of the country that are dying from this illness. And the United States government, absolutely unwilling to help its queer citizens, turns its back and fails to act swiftly. By the end of the year, 1981, there are 337 cases of individuals with severe immune deficiency in the United States and 130 deaths. By 1989, the end of the decade, over 100,000 cases will be reported. Now, I just want to clarify a bit about HIV and AIDS, because I was even a little bit confused going into this research. So HIV is a virus that attacks the immune system in humans. Without proper medication, which they don't have in the 80s, and, you know, the government refuses to fund research for until the early 90s, the virus will only worsen until it kills its host, basically. AIDS, 
is the last and most severe stage of HIV. By the time someone has AIDS, at this point a chronic condition, no longer a virus, they have such badly damaged immune systems that they then get a number of severe illnesses called opportunistic infections. Mm -hmm. Kaposi sarcoma is one of these opportunistic infections. It's a type of cancer in the lymph nodes or blood vessels that appear as those dark, purpley red lesions all over a person's body. So I think that's really the sign that a lot of people are familiar with when it comes to AIDS is, you know, head to toe lesions. That's what we're used to seeing. I I know in a past episode, we talked about some people who did die and we would say of AIDS related complications. A lot of times it would be like Jared was saying, like pneumonia. Mm -hmm. But when you have a compromised immune system, your body, similar to discussions about COVID too, and immunocompromised people, your body cannot fight other infections the same way. And I learned more about that. Because Nora, friend of the pod, my cat, has feline immunodeficiency virus, FIV. And so it reacts similarly where she can get sick very easily Mm -hmm. because she has a compromised immune system. Mm -hmm. And HIV can only be transmitted in these following ways. Through blood, semen, pre-seminal fluid, rectal fluid, vaginal fluid, and breast milk. And even then, it has to be transmitted through a mucous membrane, open cuts or sores, or direct injection. HIV cannot be transmitted through healthy, unbroken skin. So when HIV and AIDS are labeled as gay men only are able to get it, it does a lot of damage, specifically for non-gay men who need medical care, such as drug users who share needles, or women, or women who are positive and breastfeed their babies, or like people that rely on blood transfusions, you know, to survive. It really affects anybody and everybody. One of the other things I want to clarify is that nowadays, with the help of medication, HIV-positive people who are undetectable for at least six months are unable to transmit HIV to negative sexual partners. There's a big misconception about who can spread what to who and when, and it all stems from the stigmatizing language and false narratives that are spread at the start of the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. Like I was saying before, gay men are being infected at disproportionately high rates in the early 1980s. Safe sex between men is not a standard practice, and it can be weeks or even years before a person with HIV begins to develop symptoms. So before they know that they have HIV, they can have, you know, gone and had unprotected sex with various partners, and that kind of continues the spread. Gay men are brought to the hospital and are denied care or are put in a room and completely ignored. Nurses draw straws because they don't want to help these patients. Fears circulate hospital rooms and break rooms that if you care for these types of patients, you too will catch the quote-unquote gay cancer and die. And because it's such a new disease in the 80s, there's no governmental body giving guidelines or assuring their citizens and healthcare workers that they'll be fine and to actually care for patients. It's not an excuse for the horrible treatment that these hospitals and healthcare workers put these dying people through, but... From their point of view, nobody wants to risk their own health and safety, especially for someone you don't agree with lifestyle-wise. But again, that's the thing about doctors and nurses. It's not your fucking place to care about what somebody does in their personal lives. It's your job to care for the people that come into a hospital. 
So you took an oath, bro. That's the whole thing. Also, isn't it obviously this is in hindsight, um, but isn't it kind of a contradiction to be like, it only affects gay men, but also I will not treat you because then I will get really sick just by breathing air around you. And it's like it God smited you because you are a gay man, but I am not. So I, you should be presumably fine. Well, that's right? what we I, say all the time with like queer people are the weak members of society, but also watch out. They're a threat. It's like, well, they can't be one. Right. Or, they have to be one or the other. They cannot be both in your logic. Right. If it's sexual deviance in your version of this history that causes this illness, well, then you should be in the clear, right? Right. No, because you're into some. It's just homophobia. Right, 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 right. Right. So nobody wants to care for, touch, or even be in the same room as these patients because they, you know, their excuses, they don't know how HIV spreads. And they don't, but they. The main thing is that they don't want to catch it through air or respiratory right. particles, which you can't, but at the time they, they don't know this. So it it's this mixture of homophobia and fear of a new disease. Right. So they kind of ride the defensive. They don't know enough about the disease in order to neglect patients. Right. And so when an HIV or AIDS patient enters the hospital, they require blood transfusions to keep their immune systems working and to keep their cell counts stable. But the more blood that's used, the more that the nation's blood reserve is being depleted at this time. Not enough people donate blood on a regular basis to support this growing epidemic, the the need of this epidemic. And by the time the government calls for more blood, they drag their feet for so long that they're left scrambling. In 1983, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, puts a lifelong ban on gay and bisexual men more broadly, men who have sex with men, from donating blood in an effort to keep HIV out of the blood supply. Again, at this point, they're still pretty unsure of how HIV is being spread. There's little funding for research, so they're doing what they can to stop the spread of HIV, but in turn are publicizing to the nation that gay men are a health risk just in their everyday lives. That they have HIV without knowing it, which can be true, but then creates this, like, don't interact with gay people, they'll infect you. So it creates a fear. Right. Because anyone who has HIV, regardless of their sexuality, can also carry it without knowing it. Right. But again, we're functioning under the assumption that exclusively gay men have HIV and in which case are like these silent carriers of it. Right. So then it also creates fear in the public that any gay man who has already donated blood could have infected the entire supply of blood. And now everyone's going to catch this like gay cancer. They're walking biohazards. While we're on this topic, I want to say this now. The lifelong ban on gay men from donating blood, especially through the Red Cross blood drives, persisted until 2015. The ban was then amended in 2015 to men who have sex with other men, but have been abstinent for one full year before they can donate. Then, in August of 2020, amidst a high point for COVID-19, the FDA revised that one-year abstinence to a three-month abstinence before being allowed to donate blood. So in the highest priority times of need during the desperate calls for blood donations, there's always enough bigotry and fear in the government and healthcare industries that stops queer men from willingly donating their blood and saving lives. That's such an arbitrary number too. And again, 
by this time, we've known how HIV spreads and that it doesn't affect exclusively gay men. We've known this. Like, Mm -hmm. I can technically donate blood, but I am a severe anemic, so my blood is not helpful to many people. So, like, I could, but probably someone else's blood would be more helpful, but you're telling them that they can't. So it doesn't make sense. It's grossly upsetting. It's just one of the many things that is is a furthering of this stigma that we think we've advanced beyond, mm-hmm. but we clearly have not. And not only are HIV testing kits now sold at CVS for anyone to grab and go, self-tests provide results in 20 minutes. Rapid antibody and antigen tests provide results in 30 minutes. On top of that, HIV.gov explicitly states that you cannot spread HIV through donating blood. So there is zero excuse for any ban on gay Mm -hmm. men or bisexual men or men who have sex with men on donating blood, whether it be three months, 12 months, an hour, etc. It's rampant homophobia that still exists in the healthcare system. Right. And I think it's so interesting because... I think I just saw a statistic that said we've actually surpassed the number of HIV patients who are men who have sex with other men has now been like it's not the majority of people are not are not men who have sex with other men who are diagnosed with HIV. And also we're in a time where a pressing epidemic that's been going on for a while is the opioid Mm -hmm. crisis. And so people who are in the midst of experiencing the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. are also at risk Mm -hmm. for experiencing and contracting and spreading HIV. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to shift this mentality to have like a multifaceted approach now in a different way. And we're obviously not ready to do that. Right. 1000%. Now at the start of the AIDS epidemic, as the national supply is dwindling, healthy gay men are left helpless. So there's low supplies of blood, a ban on the men who want to give blood to help the queer community, a shit government who drags its feet and can't make decisions to help. Fuck you, Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Families who abandon their sick children and siblings, and a healthcare system who would rather watch them die than try and help. As the Whining About Herstory podcast notes, quote, gay men would waste away alone crying for their mothers. And that line comes from the story of Ruth Coker Burks, a woman who cared for AIDS patients whose families abandon and disown them. And I also want to throw out real quick that a lot of these infected men are closeted queer men. So then when they get HIV and their symptoms start presenting outwardly, there's no hiding it anymore. So the disease is outing a lot of people and putting a lot of people at risk and kind of putting a target on their back. So they're losing a lot of their personal lives, becoming sick, and it's mm-hmm. all happening incredibly quickly. Like a lot of people are losing a lot of things overnight. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's kind of the horrific overview of AIDS in the early 80s. And that I think could be like five podcast episodes on its own. So that's oh, like certainly. a little condensed version. But now I want to focus in on Southern California. So San Diego is one of the cities that gets hit really heavily, really quickly, really early on. Here, there's a group of mostly queer men and women called the San Diego Democratic Club, the SDDC. And within two years of the start of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, the SDDC loses half of their male members to the disease. 
One of the female members, Gloria Johnson, notes that the group was losing two to three men a week to the disease. And because there was no known treatment, they all had to essentially just accept death on a daily, regular basis. So in 1983, feeling incredibly helpless at the lack of direct calls to action to help those dying of AIDS, three members of the Women's Caucus of the San Diego Democratic Club, Barbara Vick, Wendy Sue Begalizen, and Nicolette Ibarra decide it's time to take matters into their own hands, and thus the Blood Sisters of San Diego are formed. The group's goal is to organize blood drives to provide blood for gay men and other persons with AIDS that were in desperate need of blood transfusions. Barbara establishes an account with a private blood bank in San Diego, which allows donors to designate who their donations go directly to. And so in this case, all of their donations would go to those with HIV and AIDS, Mm -hmm. which is something that is not being done. People are not out there being like, I want my blood specifically to go to these people that are dying. So this is what the Blood Sisters goal is to kind of like fill in that gap. On July 16, 1983, the Blood Sisters host their very first blood drive, which is maybe actually the very first blood drive ever, question mark. We don't really have information on the history of blood drives, but this kind of seems to be like the first documented drive that is actually established. The women promote the event by word of mouth, getting queer organizations involved, and they are even able to announce the event on a queer radio station in San Diego. Barbara hopes for about 50 women to show up to this blood drive, although even this seems to be like a little bit of a stretch. 50 Mm -hmm. women coming out to donate their blood kind of on on like a, a whim. But when July 16th, 1983 rolls around, close to 200 queer women show up, lined around the block, ready to donate their blood. Wow. Peggy Heathers, one of the blood sisters, recalls, quote, women came out of the woodwork. Women that didn't even want to have anything to do with men, even gay men. It was an incredible experience to see the caring and support, end quote. And when Peggy says that women don't want anything to do with men, even gay men, it's important to contextualize this because at this point in queer history, gay men are ruthless to queer women. Gay men are nasty to lesbians. They make fun of them. They call them names and do everything to exclude them from queer friendly spaces like gay bars. And I'm by no means saying that this doesn't happen today because it absolutely does. Queer men need to get it the fuck together. But they're truly is no redeeming quality about the general gay male population's behavior towards lesbians at the time, but here they are, showing up and willing to donate their blood to save lives. That's so beautiful, and also even more spectacular, considering this may have been one of the first blood drives, because it's like, you know, people are like, who's the first person to invent milk? Right, right. It's kind of like that. It's like these women are like, not only are they impacted by, you know, gay men in a negative way and still decided to show up to help, but are also like, yeah, I guess you can take my blood on this Saturday morning. Like, how does this work? I just stand around and you just just put a needle on me. You just take my blood. Because it's interesting because (laughs) blood banks were a thing. Like they were established. So there were places where people could like, have blood stored right. but there was no like, but not an organized like one day event no like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go to like this place this I'm just community gonna stand center around with my with my gal pals and, and just let you take my blood. blood 
Right. It was like not an established thing, but these women were here and we're like, if this is what we need to do, like, if this is what's missing, like, we are going to do this. Like, we are. Right. Sure. Take my blood. Yeah. That's amazing. And so after seeing that this blood drive worked and that there are women wanting to help, the Blood Sisters of San Diego begin setting up blood drives on a regular basis, collecting as much blood for HIV and AIDS patients as they can. And for the most part, the blood drives are quite successful. You know, they go off without a hitch. There are a few instances, though, where the Red Cross would partner with these lesbian organizations, including the Blood Sisters, and then cancel the events. In 1985, an article in the Los Angeles Times notes that, quote, despite a shortage of human blood, the Orange County chapter of the American Red Cross canceled a lesbian-sponsored donor drive last week out of fear that the public would think that the donations might be tainted by the AIDS virus, which primarily strikes homosexual men, end quote. The medical director for the Red Cross's Orange County chapter said, quote, We felt that the public was concerned that we might be collecting blood from gay men, and that is not true. We declined to go to the gay community center because of the confusion our other regular donors might have, end quote. And so the gay community center's chairman wrote in response, quote, Apparently, the need for blood in Orange County might not be as great as stated when you permit prejudice and fears to cancel a blood drive, end quote. Yet, the need for blood was dire. The American Red Cross at the same time announced a critical shortage of 6,000 units of blood in Los Angeles and Orange counties, making a public plea for immediate donations. Then the article states, quote, Two previous lesbian-sponsored blood drives in Los Angeles had to take place at a donor center in downtown Los Angeles because Red Cross officials refused to send a bloodmobile to the area's gay community center, according to officials of the center's lesbian programs, end quote. So these drives are facing blatant homophobia in the cancellation of their drives and their drives only. Right. I also have a question, I guess, and I could have asked earlier. How... Like, if you're like, gay men can't donate blood, well, how do you know? Like, is it just the honor system? Or is it just like, you look queer to me? Like, is it is it just that it's rejection enough that it's like, gay men just like, don't offer? Like, sorry, I just like, don't understand the policy of, of it all. Like, I'm not understanding it. No, 1000%. It's like, you, I could walk up to a drive and, and just have my blood drawn and they wouldn't know. But it's prejudice. It's right, right, right. It's by them being like, you look gay, you sound gay, exactly. you are gay, okay. so we don't want your blood. It's right, also right. the thing of queer men being like, well, I can't even go, so I'm not going to. It's a lot of, of course. Yeah, it's a lot yes. of different factors. Yes, I'm not wanted, so I'm not going to go. That makes perfect sense. But I didn't know if there was like some checklist of things. If someone did go, that they were like, this is just double checking. It's just an intentional like pushing uh-huh. away yeah yeah the, yeah and I, okay okay there have been cases in in past years where people have gone to a blood drive and they've been asked specifically have you had sex with another man or have you engaged in homosexual right. whatever and if they say yes or like you can't you have to go and then they're denied being able to donate blood sorry to interrupt no I no no great question to, it was in my head <laughs> and At this time, not only are these women donating their blood, but they're also donating their time and care, filling in for the families and healthcare workers who refused to support dying patients. There's a quote in the article by Dr. Kate Lister from a gay man living in San Francisco at the time of the outbreak who recalls, quote, 
there was incredible fear. People were dying so fast, and there were so many of them. I remember doctors being scared to go into the hospital rooms where my friends were dying. I feel ashamed of this, but I was scared too. No one knew what to do. Suddenly, the hospitals, and I'll add in here the homes as well, but the hospitals were full of lesbians who were volunteering. Volunteering to go into those rooms and help my friends who were dying. I remember being so moved, end quote. These women would become caretakers. They would help run errands. They would help these patients apply for social security. They would clean. They would do all of the small things that the HIV and AIDS patients couldn't do. The Blood Sisters of San Diego not only helped to promote the need for queer acceptance, solidarity, blood supply, and action by our government, but they also helped to inspire the creation of lesbian blood drives around the country. Blood drives were held in Denver, Austin, Los Angeles, Baltimore, Memphis, and even Washington, D.C. In San Francisco, posters were hung up advertising blood drives with the phrases, our boys need our blood. In 1987, a San Francisco queer newspaper urged the lesbian community to, quote, stand by our brothers in fighting the AIDS epidemic, end quote. And while the Blood Sisters of San Diego gradually disbanded after four years of operating, lesbian blood drives ran throughout the 80s and well into the 90s when the first drug treatments became widely available. Lesbians and groups like the Blood Sisters are the reason why the acronym we have nowadays is LGBTQ+. In the 80s, the popularized term was GLBT. But now when we say LGBTQ+, when we say the L first, we are honoring the lesbians that rose up amidst mass stigma to sustain their communities with their blood. We honor the women who, in the face of a reluctant government, provided the care and support that was so desperately needed. These women were not afraid to talk about HIV and AIDS. They were not deterred from entering the rooms and lives of people dying from the disease. Former President Ronald Reagan, who is hopefully rotting in hell, refused to speak about the crisis publicly until 1987. By that time, over 36,058 Americans had been diagnosed with HIV and an estimated 20,000 had already died. In July of 2022, the World Health Organization updated its HIV statistics, reporting that 38.4 million people lived with HIV in 2021, 1.5 people acquired HIV in 2021, and 650,000 people died from HIV-related causes in 2021. HIV is still a global pandemic and is an ongoing worldwide public health issue. Overall, there have been 40.1 million total deaths ever since the outbreak in 1981. In 2016, Barbara Vick and other founding members of the San Diego Blood Sisters were honored by the San Diego Lambda Archives at their Heroines, Pioneers, and Trailblazers event. And I'll end with a quote from Dr. Kate Lister, who writes in her article, quote, Groups like the Blood Sisters were about more than fighting AIDS. They were about fighting prejudice uniting a community, and showing the authorities that blood really is thicker than water. And that's the story of the Blood Sisters and lesbian activism with AIDS in the 80s. Thank you for sharing that story to sort of round out season one. I think those numbers you shared, I'm honestly a little speechless. They're still very jarring. 
But what I think the story tells me is about collective action, even in the face of feeling like you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. So like those numbers and statistics that you just shared, like are scary and they're sad and terrible. um, But there is still things that we can do even in the face of like that massive number and what feels very scary Mm -hmm. and so that's exactly what those women did against those odds and against the fact that you're just like giving to strangers strangers who you don't know who may not care about you and you're saying this is a small thing that I can do to hopefully help ease in your life and I think that's beautiful wow so amazing thank you for telling their story and giving us a little brief history of course anytime thanks for listening anytime okay thanks again jared and you're welcome in the spirit of the end of season one we're also not we i am also going to (laughs) talk about some lesbian activist movements some cool lesbian ladies just like doing the work putting in the time i'm going to be talking about the daughters of bilitis and full disclaimer i'm going to say bilitis throughout this if you know them by a different name let me know i saw a few different sources pronounce their name differently but bilitis seemed to be the most popular so stick with me with the name please the sources that i used for this episode um, include the Daughters of Bilitis Wikipedia page. We love it. Thank you, Wikipedia. Classic. <laughs> Library of Congress's LGBTQIA plus studies, a resource guide dedicated to the Daughters of Bilitis, the Melinda Lowe blog with a post entitled The Women of Color Behind the Daughters of Bilitis, the GLBTQ archive, that name makes an appearance, mm-hmm. the Los Angeles Conservancy, and the New York Public Library's online exhibition archive from 1969. Very nice. Yes. So we're going back in time slightly from Jared's story in post-World War II America, where oh. anti-communism is on the rise. So not, oh, boo, sad. anti-communism is on the rise it's thriving really and this is actually when we start to see the origins of homosexuals as security risk quote unquote which we've talked about before this was officially declared by the state department and what i learned in this research actually is the reason why and the security risk was because of the potential for blackmail and exploitation so if there are like Russians, for example, trying to blackmail Americans, this would be a good way to do that. Same thing that happened to Alan Turing. The reason why he was taken off of his, you know, post was Mm -hmm. for the fear that he was going to be blackmailed for secrets in the Cold War. Exactly. So they were seen as like subversive groups, but for this reason, Mm -hmm. what I also find sort of hilarious about that, and again, when I say hilarious on this podcast, I usually mean not funny at ridiculous but if you just made being queer less taboo you couldn't use it for blackmail or exploitation if people were just okay with it there would be nothing to use as blackmail so it's kind of on you but again your fault but okay that's where we're at right just setting the stage that's where we're at (laughs) 
So this same kind of culture around queerness extended into the raids on gay and lesbian bars that we've talked extensively about in previous episodes. Mm -hmm. A lot of these raids were concentrated in areas like New York City and San Francisco, which is where the Daughters of Villitis got their start. Rose Bomberger and her girlfriend Rosemary Slipen wanted yeah i slept rose and rosemary rose and rosemary yes yes queens as i was writing i almost just said rose and rose but it is rose and rosemary they wanted to organize a club for local lesbians but feared the police raids and other risks of assembling all together because obviously Mm -hmm. san francisco lesbians are very subversive security threats sure they need to be monitored at all costs right right let's really let's let's make sure they're not doing anything too crazy exactly rose and rosemary fugitives fugitives absolutely they must be (laughs) yeah so the couple decided instead to create a private club for other lesbians where people would gather at each other's homes rather than at like a dance club or a more public place that could really be raided whereas Mm -hmm. if you're in someone's house you kind of need more or hopefully would need more to just like barge in. Like a warrant, maybe. Oh yeah, maybe. So September 21st, 1955 was the first meeting of what would become known as the Daughters of Bilitis, which was hosted at Rose and Rosemary's home with three other couples, including well-known founders Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. So by their second meeting, so at this point the group's pretty small, it's just like a few other lesbian couples. But by their second meeting, the group had created a membership application which sought Mm. out, quote, gay girls of good moral character, unquote. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, that's... What's a good moral character? They're not robbing people? (laughs) I guess this is sort of where things get interesting. We talk about this a little bit. Okay. The start of the group is already a little rocky Uh because they say things like this that feel a little weird What does that mean? Yeah. Exactly. They still do want people who can exist in society and wouldn't be, I think, too, too queer almost. Like they really mm. wanted people to still fit in and be able to pass. They wanted what I'm try- it's what people I'm to be for. like proper women that right. just want to get together. The, the best way to advance, you know, the the lesbian agenda the lesbian yeah but like normalize normalize it was to conform to it and just Ah, make people be like lesbians are people too they're just like Mm me Mm -hmm. so that was sort of i think the intention of that also these good girls of moral character had to be over 21 because again they wanted to avoid any anything that would look like they were being deviant in some way so they want or like corrupting the youth of america sure sure as we so often do of course, that's the whole gay agenda. It's right. just corruption. Right, right, right. <laughs> so they had to be over 21. They also created the group's name during the same meeting, the Daughters of Bilitis, and it's a crossover episode because the name originates from a fictional poet, Bilitis, who was created by a real French poet. And Bilitis was, she's not a real person, uh-huh. but in this narrative that created her she was a contemporary of Sappho's so they sort of 
existed. So Sappho's real, the poet who invented Bilitis is real, but Bilitis herself is not real, but supposedly in this fictional narrative, like existed at the same time as Sappho and they wrote poems together and okay. all of those things. So the intention of this name, rather than saying like the daughters of Sappho, for example, the intention of the name was to remain discreet with one of the founders remarking, quote, if anyone asks us, we could always say we belong to a poetry club. Mm. And so eventually when they filed for status as a nonprofit organization, they sort of kept with this theme of discretion. And they said their mission was so vague in this application that we could have been a charter for a cat raising club. (laughs) A cat raising club? A cat raising Oh, cat raising. I was a cat yeah, raising. Not racing. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> that's, fun. That's you, you should do that too. Yeah, you should also. <laughs> but it also sounded a little like uh, lesbian coded. Cat, cat raising. Mm. Also felt very You're right. sexually there you motivated. Go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so the president of this new group became Del Martin, the vice president, Nani Frey, the secretary, Phyllis Lyon, treasurer, Rosemary Slypen, trustee, Marsha Foster, and the legal committee was comprised of Rose Baumberger and a Chicano woman named Mary, whose surname has been lost. So just oh, Mary. Mary. That's all we know about Mary. Okay. It's also... As I was writing the sentence, it's like, it's pretty easy to create like an executive board of a group when those are all your members. So these were all of their members at the time. (laughs) That's everyone. Uh Right. So much of the group's secrecy and this discretion was decided by this original group of women. They sort of agreed that they didn't want to be public because many of these women needed to protect their jobs. They worked and that was their main source of income. Mm-hmm. And so they really needed to protect that piece of their identity. So they agreed on this, this original group of women. But from the start, the group was sort of fractured, as we mm-hmm. kind of mentioned. Mm-hmm. And they disagreed significantly on issues of race, class, and gender. Oh. And yeah, so the big ones, the big mm-hmm. three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the big ones. Those are big ones to disagree with. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty hard to have like a sustainable group if you're like not on the same page. Right. If your founding members don't agree on the same principles, make <laughs> right. your own clubs. Just make right. your own clubs. Oh, don't worry. They did. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> So, so this is notable, like I said, Mm -hmm. even from the start, because doing the research for this episode, so even now, even all these years later, every website lists a different founder. So Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon are often credited, but I want to note that the women of color who were among the founding members and soon, very soon after left the group, like a Mm -hmm. month, like Rose Bomberger, are often left out of that history. So... Mm. I'm crediting Rose and Rosemary as starting the group. It was hosted first at their house and they sort of came together. All of these founders are important, this original group of women. Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon do more work later. But Rose, I think it's interesting that the women of color who are part of this original group are often left out of that narrative. So Rose Baumberger specifically and Mary, who they're even like, we don't know her last name. Mary. Mm-hmm. They Mary care. something. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like, even though that, even though they left a month in and then more of a history was created by the members that stayed, it doesn't make them any less of a founding member of the group. They left because they were like, okay, this is, 
this is not what we wanted. This is not what we were picturing. This is right. not, we're not in being included in this thing that we created. It doesn't mean that they didn't create it. It just means that they realized that these other women were, <laughs> were racist or, yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> Their missions were not aligned from the start. So that's why they left. Right. But, but that like, doesn't mean exactly the history so, like, of it. They kind of kept going with the group and it became popular so then they get credited with it right but these other women were there for the start of it and then we're like this is not i don't love this This right this is not what we signed up for literally right so that's kind of like literally the first few months of the group's origins (laughs) not destined for good things Anyway, to protect the group members' privacy and knowing full well that they would not be allowed to advertise this lesbian social group in, like, a local newspaper, Dell and Phyllis began to print a newsletter for members of the group and mutual friends. Like, mm-hmm. so to sort of advertise it through word of mouth, that way they could protect who they were giving the information to. So you want to give it to a stranger, you would give it to someone who you knew was cool with it. Mm-hmm. Eventually, this journal became known as The Ladder. That was its official name. And it was actually the first nationally distributed lesbian publication, which, oh. is, which is cool. It's yeah, real. that is. It was first sent out in October 1956, and Phyllis became the publication's first editor. Every inside cover of the journal included the following statement about the Dobb mission. So the Daughters of Bilitis mm-hmm. mission. Education of the variant, which means lesbian, um, as I looked up, but it wasn't as accepted of a term or as like normalized as a term. So they said variant. Right. Education of the variant to enable her to understand herself and make her adjustment to society. This to be accomplished by establishing a library on the sex deviant theme by sponsoring public discussions to be conducted by leading members of the legal, psychiatric, religious and other professions by advocating a mode of behavior and dress acceptable to society. Education of the public, leading to an eventual breakdown of erroneous taboos and prejudices. Participation in research projects by duly authorized and responsible psychologists, sociologists, and other such experts directed towards further knowledge of the homosexual. And investigation of the penal code as it pertains to the homosexual, proposal of changes, and promotion of these changes through the due process of law in state legislatures. Holy shit, that is a lot of words. It's a lot of words. It's kind of their, that's their sort of mission. And I'll break down the words a little bit. They're a little, just as we were talking about earlier, a lot of their mission was just get lesbians more recognized in society as just being normal, everyday, average Joes. Which is incredibly ironic because the way that they describe lesbians is as a variant they describe Mm -hmm. themselves as being the other and so Mm -hmm. i think it's interesting that in an effort to become more normalized it may be a recognition that they are outside of the standard but even in their own labeling as the other it feels like like right from the start it feels like oh we're the we're the other that needs to be kind of like educated to meet the standards of everybody else like it seems like they're positioning themselves as outsiders yes we need to tailor our behavior to conform to the behavior of the in crowd i see i Um, see so this is this is really why 
there was so much sort of fracturing of the group because of things like that. Obviously, not everyone felt that way. I also think what's interesting in these sort of missions is constantly talking about the sort of authorities on the matter being psychologists and sociologists at the time, because we know sociologists and psychologists at the time were so wrong and so awful and terrible. So the fact that they were being regarded as like, these are our scientific authorities on ourselves, right, is probably lends itself to I'd understanding more about their mission and why, again, there was that fracturing. Right. So by 1958, the New York chapter of the Daughters of Bilitis was founded by Barbara Gittings and her partner Kay Tobin Lahusen. So Gittings would also become the editor of the latter and moved the National Journal from exclusively lesbian social information to lesbian and women's rights and became more politically militant. So sort of moved the group from just being like gal pals hanging out to like activism. Okay. It is likely that this further radicalization of the New York chapter specifically happened because of Another crossover episode, ba 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 ba. It's close work with the Mattachine Society, which mm-hmm. we've mentioned in previous episodes. So, Barbara saw how impactful collective political action could be in New York City after seeing some of the successes of the Mattachine Society, which was far mm-hmm. larger, but that was sort of their model. Sure. Within four years of its founding, the Daughters of Bilitis had chapters in New York, Rhode Island, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Chicago. The group's size now was clearly growing, but those underlying tensions that we've been mentioning continue to expand with them. So Mm -hmm. now there's like different factions almost. There were many movements happening simultaneously, so late 50s, early 60s, and especially a lot of them felt relevant to some members of the group, specifically the feminist movement. So a lot of members were like, this is important to us. Let's let's bring this stuff in. Mm -hmm. So some members wanted the group to remain non-political and focus solely on education and like connections for lesbians across the country, whereas others saw the opportunity to expand that original mission to include more radical feminist ideals because they saw how those two overlap. Much of this disagreement came to a head in 1960 when the Daughters of Bilitis held their first convention in San Francisco. There was a long-standing rule, like, from the creation and inception of the Daughters of Bilitis, that women who attended their meetings could only wear pants if they were wearing women's slacks. And that goes into, we've talked about in previous episodes, the the rule about cross-dress, the laws around Mm cross-dressing. So we'll unpack this in a little bit, but there were a few different reasons for this rule. But essentially, it was put in place that if you were going to wear any dress that wasn't like a literal dress, Mm -hmm. it had to be specifically women's. Many members, though, saw this strict conformity as a way to force members into a certain look of femininity and disagreed with the policy. In Melinda Lowe's blog, they write, quote, although Dell's belief that lesbians were dressing butch in order to meet other lesbians was probably true for some, for other people, cross-dressing was about much more than clothes. Butch was an identity, unquote. So this is what's important because 
there was probably a safety issue involved with the policy, with making sure that if anybody was seen attending meetings or being part of the group, that they wouldn't be subject to this law around cross-dressing and wearing women's clothes specifically. Mm -hmm. However, there was also another piece of the founders really caring about this conformity and again, passing as feminine and normalizing lesbians as women in society. So there's like a couple different pieces and the members were able to pick up on that and they didn't love it. Sure. So at this convention in 1960, which was attended by about 200 members, the police actually did come in to check if any of the members were wearing men's clothes because of this cross-dressing law. Mm -hmm. And it was said that at this convention, all 200 women were wearing stockings, dresses, and heels. So the policy, again, was helpful, like in that moment was helpful. And it was partly for the protection of the members, but also, again, to push back on the idea of butch women, Mm -hmm. which is what members would write into the latter, the magazine and the journal to be like, this, can we not do this? Let's not do this. Right. It seems almost like the enforcement of the dress code was being used almost as an excuse for the founders Mm -hmm. to be like, no, it's for our protection, but their roots are in conformity of femininity, whatever that means, and what mm-hmm. a woman looks like. So it it's almost like you're you're hiding behind this policy that is almost against you as queer women, and you're using it mm-hmm. to say, we have to do this, we have to follow the rules. And that is inherently against the feminist and queer feminist movement like that is everything that they are saying we don't want to be told that we have to do x y and z we want to be able to do whatever the hell we want and so if you have members or if you have founders that are saying "Mm, don't really care what you want this is what we're doing that's not that's not the recipe for success and and you know yes having like a good environment and for Right. It's really hypocritical leadership and Mm -hmm. they weren't really allowing people to voice those concerns. And they're kind of at this really important crossroads. And you can see where maybe they made some choices that didn't benefit the sustainability of the group. Sure. But they're at this crossroads of, like I said, a bunch of different movements and where they wanted to sort of stake their place in those movements. And they, the founders really felt like they needed to honor the roots of just sort of talking about lesbian issues and specifically more social rather than political. And so that is where we see that they weren't really open to some of these newer Mm -hmm. ideas that at the time seemed a little bit more radical. Somebody mentioned that blue jeans, like jeans started to become really popular, but they didn't make women's jeans. So members would be like, I want to wear jeans. And they're like, you can't wear jeans because there's no women's jeans. Mm. And so it does become this weird sense of power that is not really reflective of what an advocacy group should be like the leadership shouldn't have this this power to tell other people what to wear because again that's just then right you're just enforcing the same policies that exist in society that are not helpful if a person wants to wear jeans let them wear jeans blue jeans white shirt walked into the room you made my eyes hurt burn hurt 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 i don't know hurt doesn't make sense but that's just what i finished the sentence 
Okay. Whatever. Hurt. Okay. Making my eyes hurt. <laughs> okay. So soon after all of this eye hurting, Crying. in 1963, Barbara Giddings of New York became the editor of The Ladder, which was essentially the only way members could communicate with each other. So that piece is important. There are some national chapters, there's smaller chapters everywhere, and The Ladder goes out to everyone. It's sort of how people are able to disperse their information and how they learn about the missions and whatever. So they were printing about 500 copies monthly. Giddings used this communication to encourage readers to get involved politically by joining organizations such as now the National Organization of Women and attending the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, or NACHO. Ooh. Nacho. They nacho. wanted everybody to have some nachos. Sure. Dig it. So because of this, the split continued growing larger between the original founders in San Francisco and then Barbara Giddings in New York because the group at this time also had trouble recruiting younger members, many of whom preferred to be part of a more outspoken and revolutionary group dynamic because they're seeing this rise of feminism. They're like, we could do it all. Right. We could do get involved in all of these things. And around this time, the concept of intersectionality, I think, is also becoming more of a acknowledged concept, right? So I think these young mm -hmm. women, these young feminists are like, well, I'm a woman and I'm also queer and some of them are also women of color. You know, it's like, I don't want right. to be part of an organization that's just focused on me being like a queer woman or whatever. Like I want, exactly. I want to be represented in all of my different aspects. Exactly. And that's what they're seeing. They're like, we don't have to choose one identity to prioritize over another one. Right. When there are groups who are offering to them, and I don't know how successfully, because we know the history of the feminist movement is fraught sure. with like isolation and exclusion, but we know that people are at least offering an involvement in groups that are supposedly doing all of these things, whereas right. the Daughters of Bilitis are sort of just trying their best to hang on to the original mission, mm -hmm. which again was not a bad mission at all. Like the original idea was not a bad one. It's just that it did not adapt to the time. And I think ding, that's ding, important ding. to point out. Mm -hmm. So Barbara Giddings in New York passed the reins to an even more revolutionary counterpart, Barbara Greer, who mm. became the editor of The Ladder in 1968. There's okay. a lot of barbs in this episode. Barb to barb. Not, not, not Nicki Minaj. Minaj. <laughs> not Nicki Minaj stands, but other barbs. Sure. The Barbaras. Right. Greer operated in direct opposition to Phyllis and Dell's original mission moving the ladder from lesbian rights to women's rights more broadly. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Greer and her literal partner in crime, I don't think they were in a relation, like a romantic relationship, but okay. they were literally crime partners. Oh. <laughs> Rita Laporte, they stole the confidential subscriber list from the Daughters of Bilitis headquarters. Oh. And it's confidential for a reason. So uh, obviously people don't get outed. Right. And they so once they stole this, they effectively cut off any ties that the other Daughters of Bilitis leadership had to the latter. So they couldn't mm -hmm. connect with their members anymore. Okay. So they took all of this and essentially like started this coup of leadership. And they were like, now we have this. You literally can't do anything. So they began publishing the latter independently with their own mission that was more politically charged until they essentially ran out of money. Because... Yeah. Of course. They weren't receiving the donations from the Daughters of Bilitis. They were just sort of on their own. Mm -hmm. 
1968, the final Daughters of Bilitis conference was held in Denver to an audience of less than two dozen women. Oh, less than two dozen? I thought you were yeah. going to say 200. No. Two dozen? There less was less than, than 24 dozen. people? Yeah, mm. they were like hanging out in like a Hilton Garden Inn conference room with like 20 of them. <laughs> oh, God, that's so sad. Oh, that made yeah. my heart break a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Mm. The Daughters of Bilitis sort of acknowledged this as well and formally disbanded in 1972 along with the latter, leaving a deep impact within the LGBTQ plus community. During its publication, the latter printed almost 3,800 copies. Mm. And also, so now we're like sort of skipping ahead to the future, legacy of the daughters. Okay. I thought this was a fun fact. When California Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, Gavin Newsom, current governor of California, who was at the time the mayor of San Francisco, officiated the 2008 wedding of Jill Martin and Phyllis Lyon. Oh, very So nice. that was just a little fun fact. Just yeah. a little fun fact. So historian Martin Meeker wraps up the Daughters of Bilitis by saying, quote, the DOB succeeded in linking hundreds of lesbians across the country with one another and gathering them into a distinctly modern communication network that was mediated through print and consequently imagination rather than sight, sound, smell, and touch, unquote. And so though small, the Daughters of Bilitis were truly mighty and they were able to reduce a lot of the shame and stigma that lesbians across the country were facing. So really, mm-hmm. while they were very conformist. I think they offered an, a transition for maybe a lot of closeted lesbians sort of into being more comfortable with their sexuality and then eventually coming out. Like it was a softer transition than just immediately these radical or revolutionary movements. So mm-hmm. it definitely served a really, really important purpose. They had a rocky journey from start to finish, definitely, but their goals really were accomplished and helped lay the groundwork for further activist movements. So by 1972, they were disbanded. And a lot of their important work happened in the early 60s, which really did lay the foundation for a lot of the other movements we've talked about here. So yeah, that was the Dob. That was the Daughters of Bilitis. Controversy, controversy, but... Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is the biggest thing, like we were just saying, that controversy after controversy, yes. However, they were incredibly important in taking kind of the first steps of having a lesbian led organization and i i think you're right i think that does no matter how much they ended up not being the greatest people i think they started something really great i think they had really great intentions and that led to more people being comfortable making a queer network and coming out and doing all these things and maybe making their own organizations so it definitely led to a lot it's like a good catalyst it's a good jump start that this nation needed right. for lesbian and queer women's organizations. Mm-hmm. Although right. it it also seems like it needed to disband when it did disband because it was no exactly. longer serving the purpose that the country needed. That's where it went wrong yeah. is that it didn't adapt to the really fast changing times. In, yeah. in you know, it, it for so long it's been secrecy, 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 doing what we can, doing these small little things. And then all of a sudden we have the feminist movement and we have civil rights movement and we have the Mm -hmm. queer liberation movement. Like we have all these things happening in quick succession. So I think in a time when those changes weren't happening, they 
would have thrived and continued to thrive, but because they didn't adapt to changing circumstances, they were left in the dust and it needed to be, you know, I think. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. They, they knew when to quit. Good. And, and I'm thankful for that because what we have now is probably so much more helpful than right. if they had continued to try to be an organization and, and yeah. hold their same original values that no longer fit to the, the, the queer people that would have been members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, their original mission was to accomplish one thing, but I think the far more important thing that they did accomplish was exactly what you said of like making it okay and acceptable mm-hmm. and sort of going through all of those controversies or like having kind of a rocky journey in order to help the next generation yes. be able to do it maybe a little bit better. And so you always need one person to sort of take the leap and try. And and I think really from the start too, they didn't know what they wanted it to be. Like it wasn't, right. it was kind of like us starting this podcast. We were just like, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll figure it out along yeah. the way. And yeah. so I think they figured out along the way that it wasn't a group that was going to be sustainable with the current membership. And then uh, one of them stole a bunch of stuff from them. So right. listen, <laughs> they, they, right. To, to start a chain reaction, one domino needs to fall. But in that happening, the domino is falling. It's not, right. you know, <laughs> right, it's right. not standing. You know, it needs exactly. Yeah, it needs it needs exactly. to create a change, but it needs to do its part and then let the rest happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perfectly summed up. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to episode 27 and season one of Historically Really Good Friends, where today we talked about lesbian activism. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes dropping your phone in the toilet of a pancake house a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. To see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at Historically Really, and make sure to send us your personal stories at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We hope to see you again in September for season two. Goodbye. Later.